Hi everyone and welcome to the Weldonomics podcast brought to you by the UQES diversity team. I'm Liam. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Jo. And I'm Maylis. And each week we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. Welcome back to the Weldonomics podcast for season two. I can't say much has happened in the last few weeks, but we are all very excited to be back and to interview some incredible people this semester again. Before we introduce this first episode, I'd like to welcome a new member to the podcast team, the lovely Joe. Hi guys. It's always great to see the team grow. Now, the first episode is not hosted by us, but by the education team who are interviewing a special guest on the short run macroeconomic effects of this pandemic, a very relevant topic. We hope that you enjoy this episode and we'll see you in a fortnight. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we record this podcast today and would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Now, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jorge Miranda Pinto, who is here to talk to us about some of the short-run macroeconomic effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Jorge, if you'd like to introduce yourself. I'm very happy to, to have this chance to talk to you about this. I'm a lecturer at UQ School of Economics since 2017, and I teach uh, macroeconomic, advanced macroeconomics, PhD courses and focus on macro and sometimes master courses on macro as well. Um, so just moving on, can you give us a bit of an overview of why the COVID-19 pandemic has caused a recession in Australia, especially since some industries have seen an increase in spending from panic buy? Okay. Um, initially, without any lockdown, it's uh, definitely a, a supply shock that affects uh, workers and, and companies through labor force essentially um, workers becoming sick uh, dying unfortunately and then in australia in particular besides that we have the lockdowns the lockdowns that will close uh, certain industries that are directly affected um, as restaurants tourism uh, recreation etc and uh, and the fact that these industries are interconnected to other industries of the economy, there are what, which what I, I call in my research as well, production networks. Um, the fact that we are all interconnected, different industries buy and sell inputs and outputs to others, that amplifies this uh, drop by half, potentially, depending on the, on the numbers. Uh, another reason is that you have, um, Australia is a relatively small open economy that depends significantly on external demand, that, which is also depressed. Um, therefore, the lockdown-induced recession, the connections, then also generate this decline in demand, endogenously, essentially. So there is another decline in demand. People shift consumption basket to other goods or, by, or in, uh, indeed reduce consumption. If you lose your job and you're relatively poor, you reduce your consumption significantly. So there are all these um, endogenous effects coming from this supply shock that generate an additional demand decline domestically. But in addition, you have other countries that are connected to Australia with similar situation. So that's an overall uh, picture. Well, thank you so much for answering that. 
Um, <clears throat> I'm moving on. Can you please tell us what were some of the causes of the stock market crashes during the pandemic? And to what extent is this likely to impact consumer confidence and spending in the short term? Um, the, the, there are many analyses, interesting analysis out there about the causes of the stock, stock market crash. Uh, from theory, we know that a stock price should reflect um, the present discount value of future, the future value of, of that company, right? And therefore, uh, part of the decline uh, was because many companies were directly affected by this. So it was fundamental, right? But, and, 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 but there were other non-fundamental factors that fears uh, generated by uncertainty that also may investors to switch from risky asset to, to safer asset as well. So um, indeed, this is a study that, that I've been looking at. There, there are several, but uh, a large fraction of what we saw during the, the, the initial months of the pandemic was non-fundamental, more fears and uncertainty. But you can see now stock prices are, are, are coming up, are coming back again, even though there's still a lot of uncertainty around vaccine and, and when we're going to come back to normal. But it's, um, it's a combination of those two things. And consumer will be affected from two channels, right? On the, on the one hand, people that got heavily affected by this stock market crash, if you look at S&P, there is a yearly decline of 10%. Well, that is a wealth effect that will affect consumption for sure. And consumer sentiment will be uh, affected by that, but also by this uncertainty of, of the future uh, recovery. And, um, and what we discussed in the first part, like the more fundamental linkages that generate declines in demand as well. Thank you. Um, moving on to the next question. To what extent could the COVID-19 um, could the COVID-19 crisis increase structural unemployment in Australia due to people losing their jobs in, as their employees go out of business? Examples like tourism, hospitality and travel agencies. And do you think there might be opportunities for people to move into new areas in the short to medium term? Um, I think that um, these sectors that you mentioned, like travel agencies, uh, hospitality, tourism, should have in principle a transitory shock that should last ideally no more than six months from now or, or ideally less, but could be more. And, and in that regard, um, as long as uh, there is a, a good government package or, or, the, or the companies are able to keep training their workers, there might be a, a connection or a match that is not lost there. However, there will be many companies closing, as, as you well mentioned. And for those workers that uh, got laid off, I think uh, this is, as what we see in the data is we see unemployment rate going up, employment rate going down, but also labor force participation, which means that many people decided just stay safe at home or, or take this opportunity to study and to get out of the labor force. And if that's the case, then structural unemployment will not be as high because as we know, unemployment depends on the labor force as well. Um, but I, do think that this is a good opportunity for, for people on the on the edge of changing a career or improving their skills to to move and to improve and from what we see uh, in the education at least at uq the numbers of internal students haven't dropped substantially so there is still high demand for education which is 
some indication of this uh, being taken advantage. Um, thanks so much for answering that. In your opinion, to what extent is the JobKeeper subsidy appropriate to deal um, with the COVID-19 recession? Um, in the short run, I think it was uh, very good um, because it was fast. It had a substantial substantially large amount of people covered of course there were many casual that could not make it but it was a it has a large coverage and and that allowed people to stay safe at home and, and don't go out as in many developing countries where government didn't act fast and strong they had to go out they had to to earn their money outside which increased the infection so the short-term benefit of this in terms of a so from a social perspective reducing infection rates and, and mitigating the, the, the COVID-19, I think it was very good in Australia. Excellent. However, if we take a look of the medium term, we can then think of two things, that the JobKeeper is potentially too generous and generate moral hazard, which means that discourage people to, to indeed go and look for jobs and work, etc. However, all in all, we can say that this is this was a a regressive sorry a progressive policy, progressive in the sense that it benefited more the poorer fraction of the population than the richer fraction of the population. So in that regard, um, it's positive. But again, the moral hazard effects might be um, might be uh, not optimal, and we could design something that might be better based on replacement rates, et cetera, a fraction of the income. So people don't, and, and that decreases over time. So there is not this incentive to stay out of the unemployment or the labor force. Um, similarly, just going off that question, are there any obvious issues with setting the subsidy at a flat rate of $1,500 a fortnight to all workers who are eligible, regardless of their particular circumstances? So that does follow on from what you were just mentioning. Exactly. So in the, in the short run, that was a fast, good, uh, progressive policy that affected and benefited many people that had less uh, resources and less money. And um, it had a, like a roof, right? And that roof didn't um, benefit too much people that lost their jobs and was earning $100,000 a year, right? Uh, but now when we think about uh, an, op an, opti an optimal policy, we we might think of something that we discussed in the, in the previous question, which is something more like a replacement rate, like a fraction of the salary. So unemployment insurance uh, are work that, that way. In unemployment insurance, you lose your job, and then you have a 70 or 50 and 40% of your income for uh, an amount of months, and that is declining over time to reduce this moral hazard behavior that people stayed out of the labor force. But again, in the short run, I like it. I would love my home country to that they would have done something like that to prevent people to go out and reduce uh, infections. But now in the medium term, it's something that can be definitely improved. Do you think that the RBA cash rate should be reduced further to the zero lower bounds to help deal with the COVID-19 recession? Um, I don't think that would be optimal. Um, reducing it from 0 0.25 to zero wouldn't have large impact. Uh, at this stage, what we want is a strong and conventional monetary policy. So like repo, buying 
buying and, and, and then uh, buying back uh, securities or injecting liquidity. Or as we studied in, in at university, we know that forward guidance is another uh, element that is important and Australia is doing, which is promising interest rates are going to be low for, for many periods, which reduces in expectation uh, the, the present discount value of, of rates and, and reduces spreads, encourages um, lending, buying houses, etc. So I, I think it more than going from 0.25 to zero, um, a more effective set of policies would be strengthening what the RBA is doing now in terms of unconventional monetary policy. Um, sorry, I just thought of a question as you were speaking. So if you don't mind, I'll just... Yeah, yeah sure. In a random one. I guess just going off the unconventional monetary policy, what is your current opinion on the government's decision to do yield curve control instead of quantitative easing like New Zealand? Um, in, instead of using New Zealand's policies? Yeah, so New Zealand's currently doing quantitative easing and they're buying a lot of bonds and spending a lot of money and Australia's doing yield curve control and they haven't had to buy bonds for a while, so it's much more cost-effective, but our bond market is doing hmm, not as well as New Zealand. So I'm just wondering, yeah. what is a trade-off, do you think, or is your opinion in that respect? Yeah, so, I mean, probably the Australian repo operation haven't been uh, so effective but i mean australia is doing quantitative easing by buying uh, longer term uh, securities uh, as well i'm not i don't have the numbers exactly to compare that to new zealand um, but the yield curve uh, operation is good in terms of the forward guidance to keep expectations uh, anchored on, on on low future interest rates so what I do like and didn't mention before is this, uh, the RBA is also providing loans with low interest rate to, to small and medium enterprises. So that's another of the policies that injects liquidity and the RBA is doing currently. Um, I will have to look more into what you just mentioned about the comparison with New Zealand. That's right, sorry, I, did, I just thought of it now. Um... But moving on to the other question, are there any other fiscal policy measures like tax cuts or government spending which might have been more appropriate to deal with the recession in the short run as opposed to the flat rate? Um, well, as I said before, I think in the short run, that flat rate was a progressive uh, policy that helped people stay in homes. So I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, it was uh, disastrous. It was uh, good given the the time frame and the urgency, and it was fast. Uh, and I would talk more about complementary measures to you. So, um, and there, yes, we have tax, tax reliefs um, policies that are also complementary and have been uh, implemented, not only in Australia, but in, in, in many other countries as well. Um, so subsidies to small, medium enterprises have also been implemented. So um, the Australian government has also supported the construction sector quite a lot, as you have seen, from a supply perspective, but also from a demand perspective to help uh, buyers to, to boost the, the, the sector. Um, so I think those are complementary policies, complementary policies that, that, that really help the economy. But I think that the, the whole fiscal package now needs to be re, rethought and, and let's start thinking about the recovery rather than the mitigation phase where you allow people 
So there, there are a lot of different options that are currently already in place, but need to be better, better targeted potentially. Leading on from the government response, do you think it would have been better to have initially introduced the JobKeeper as a percentage of current income or the flat rate that it was introduced at? That is a good question. So to, to answer properly, I would have to write down a, a com- whole model <laughs> and do the, the computation. <laughs> but what we can do, and it's also useful, always useful, is to compare with uh, different countries, right? So um, an issue with, um, with, the, with the policy that targets us a replacement rate is that... Um, in terms of fiscal um, balance, so fiscal budget, people of high income losing their jobs. If that, if a large fraction of high income people was losing their job, and, and you would subsidize based on that, you would potentially end up with a with a larger deficit. The Australian debt is is, is so far forty eight percent of GDP projected to be. So there are a lot of things that need to be thought. So stability from a fiscal perspective how much money would that have implied but in terms of mitigating infections and all that both would have been relatively similar the moral hazard one would have been reduced by by the by the percentage so might be better for the recovery in that regard that's why it's something that we might uh, start discussing now but yeah it is it, hard to to evaluate the optimality in terms of welfare without a proper theory model and, and actual numbers on what are the fiscal costs of both. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question for a test. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today, Jorge. It was really um, insightful and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.